Last time we started speaking about the difference between codes and responsa in context of Pnei Halacha. We spoke a little bit about Rav Malamid on one hand and Rav Asher Weiss on the other hand and their various approaches to you know, what they wrote regarding the Kotel and a controversy around the dedication of a the designation of a particular area. Uh, alongside the western wall of Harabait for egalitarian prayer, specifically prayer by, you know, uh, prayers of reform and conservative groups, uh, and how their different approaches sort of, uh, you know, one taking more of a, you know, an approach that gives you right up front what the ideological claim is, and the halacha proceeds directly from that, and the other one, which takes an approach that's a little bit more, I would say a little bit more coy, a little bit more clever, and that frames the, frames the halakhic position in a way that's more acceptable to people that even, you know, that even would, it's more, it's, a, it's acceptable to a wider, to a wider group. It's acceptable to a wider uh you know, it, 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 it doesn't require the same sort of ideological commitments. So that's one, you know, that's one difference. That's not always the difference between codes and responsa, but in this case, in this case, it is a difference, and it can be, in general, it can be a difference because a, a chuva, a responsum, is designed to persuade, it's designed... You know, there, there are, there's a rhetorical structure to it. Now, there's a rhetorical structure to, uh, to codes also. There is a rhetorical structure to pretty much any, you know, any sort of, any argument that's making a writing, that, that's making a, any writing that's making an argument. Uh, but it's much less, where the, persu the persuasion, when it comes to a, when it comes to a, a code, is much more like built into the structure of the entire work, whereas in a responsum, it's more individual to the specific responsum and sometimes even to the specific recipient of the responsum. Another difference between responsa and codes is something that we, we spoke about earlier, and that's who is the audience? The audience of a responsum is generally other rabbis, other experts, other members of the elite or the sub-elite of the, you know, the, the, the Jewish intellectual elite or, or sub-elite. Uh, it's rabbis asking other rabbis in general. You very rarely find, in the classical response literature, you very rarely find things that are written to uh, random, you know, balabatim, people that are, you know, min hashura. Right? Even if it's a question that's regarding a balabas, it's regarding somebody or regarding, you know, an average typical community member. It's not the community member that's turning to this, to the, to the Meishiv. Rather, it's he turns or she turns to the local rabbi. And then if the local rabbi feels out of his league, he turns to the, he turns to the more general expert. Codes, on the other hand, as we 
as we've as we've discussed, codes are generally geared toward the hamonaam, right? They're geared toward the non-experts. They're intended to make life easier for the experts, and that's part of the reason, a major part of the reason, that codes have often been, you know, especially the more popular the code, the more resistance there's going to be, because all of a sudden you're going to have people saying, like, wait, no, this is this is not how, we don't paskin based on books like this. You have to really know the sugya. You have to really know your stuff in order to paskin. This is not how we do it. And you see that in things that are coming out now against Rav Malamed, you know, Masoret Psika, this is going against the Masoret Psika. Let me tell you something. The Shulchan Aruch, and the Nosei Kalim, and the, and the, the Shulchan Aruch and the Ramah also against, went against the Masoret of Psika. Right? They also went against the, position, the tradition of Psak. The tradition of Psak until their day was that you, you know, you didn't paskin based on these codes. You based that paskin based on your knowledge of Rishonim and Shil's Juvos and books, works like Shari Dura, manuscripts generally. You know, it, it was a completely different... It, it completely altered how Psak happens. And this happens over the course of Jewish history. There's a Mesorah's Psyche, and then there's something happens, and... There has there, there's a reaction to it. Now, the initial reaction is generally going to be, this is not what we do. This is not how we do it. This is anti-traditional. And that's what people are now saying about Rav Malamed. People are, you know, this is not the Masoras Psika. Okay? And I'm going to get into specific examples of that, but that will take us to the next, to the next issue. But just the fact that he is, that Rav Malamed is, is gearing his works towards Balabatim, towards high school students, right? His, his works are studied in Israeli, you know, religious high schools, right? The fact that you have, you know, a few years ago, there was a, a New York Times profile of Naftali Bennett, right? When it started to become apparent that Naftali Bennett, Bennett was a rising star in Israeli politics, that he was going to, that he was going to become prime minister, it had, you know, a thing of, you know, him at home with his kids and whatever, and you can see in the background... There's a set of Penine Halacha right there in the New York Times, in Naftali Bennett's house. And Naftali Bennett is almost like the avatar for the average Israel, for the, certainly for the Israeli right, for the Israeli religious right. He's like this avatar of the Balabas, right? The guy who, he might be a great guy, and he might be, uh, he might be you know, obviously now that he's part of a, a left-wing a left coalition, you know, even that, you know, he's... He's persona non grata. But even before that, it was like, okay, he's not the most learned guy in the world. He's not the frumest guy in the world. He's the avatar of what they call Dati Light, right? He's, yeah, he's, he's Dati Light. He's, he's barely religious, right? He's, you know, make fun of his yarmulke that's the size of a half a shekel and whatever. His machat is a shekel yarmulke. But he's a religious guy, right? And his wife is, you know, from a non-religious background or whatever. Um, but there it is, Penine Halacha on his shelf. He uses it, and he actually spoke a few years ago at a at a uh, at an event marking the printing of the 500,000th volume of Penine Halacha. And he said that, you know, it's not really his set; it's his wife's set. That the that Penine Halacha has been a really good introduction for her to. The routines and you know of, of Jewish life and Jewish living, um, which you know Jewish tradition, uh, which is something that she didn't grow up with. She's from a, a secularist family, right? And she's raising a religious family, and so Penine Halacha was 
was very important for her. But that's, you know, you're really, that means that it's geared and it's written to be accessible to people who really are not coming in with a lot of, you know, a real non-expert. Somebody that's coming in from, you know, from not a strong Jewish education. And so when you bypass, right, if people can get halacha, if people can learn what to do from a book, it's like what we talked about, that anecdote with Rabbi Yehuda of Modena, Rabbi Yehuda de Modena, de Modena of, of Venice, you know, when he saw some balabas or some amaretz with a shulchan aruch, and he said, like, look, I got this shulchan aruch, I don't need, I don't need you rabbis anymore, right? And that's, so it's a threat. It's a threat to the rabbis, especially rabbis who are, meaning, if they all, if, if it was just a question of, I agree with your rulings, but I'm just like, I'm, a, I'm at a loss of power now because people are going straight to this book and aren't coming to me, so I'm out of job. So that's one set of considerations, and that's not always like, okay, meaning it's not like, you know, it's like the robot zombie apocalypse. It's like the robot apocalypse, right? My, my job is being taken over. My job is being obviated. It's a source of anxiety, but I don't think that's the main source of anxiety here. I think that the main source of anxiety is that they don't necessarily agree with him about a lot of the things that he's ruling on. And it's like he's got this media machine, and he's issuing these rulings that are becoming the de facto standard ruling for the religious Zionist community, and these people are like, no, no, he's not, you know, like, the, the, the playing field is no longer level, right? He's gotten into so many homes, and he's gotten into so many places that they can't get into um, because he has these, because he's a good writer, because he, you know, he had and he utilized his credibility um in order to get into these homes and you know, in order to get to people's homes, in order to become the standard work, to become the religious Zionist Shulchan Aruch. And now people are looking at it and saying, but no, that's, you know, we, you can't just say, oh, but we disagree. It's like, okay, you're free to disagree. But it's like, ah, we disagree, but like, we don't have the tools that he has in order to make it into everybody's home. So now the fight becomes a little bit nastier because... You have to, it's not enough to say that we disagree because, okay, you can disagree, but nobody cares, right? If you say Elu Elu, it's like, great, Elu Elu, I'm going to go with this guy because I like his books, right? No, now it's got to be, we got to discredit him because he's taking, he's going in directions that not only that we disagree with, but that we don't think, you know, we don't think you should be going with either. So I have to discredit the guy. Uh, I think that's where we're going now. Right. I think it's it's not envy and it's not jealousy. It's a question of there's no longer a level playing playing field because so many people are reading and learning Panine Halacha. It's become such a standard work that people are saying that, like, wait a second, if we don't do something now, this is going to become the, you know, the last word, the final word on what religious Zionist Jews believe and do. Um, and they don't want that to happen, meaning because they, they believe otherwise. And so it's not enough, and, and they know that they can't beat him at his own game. They know that they can't write an alternative that people will buy in the same quantities and learn with the same regularity as Pinein Halacha because it's such a good book, right? So they have to do the next thing, which is to discredit it, to say that he's doing anti-traditional things, right? I think that um, one of the sons of Rav Yaakov Ariel said something like, um, you know, I think he said the quiet part out loud, 
when he said that Muhammad is a Trojan horse, right? He looks like one of us. He went to the same institutions. It's not like we're, you know, it's not like these other liberal rabbis who don't look the part. He looks the part. You know, he's the head of a, you know, he's the rabbi of a yeshuv in the middle of the Shomron. He's got all the things that would give him credibility. And therefore, he's a Trojan horse because he's secretly this liberal guy that's, you know, that's like he's a wolf in sheep's clothing, right? That's what the... That's what these guys are, you know, that's what, that's what this son of Ravariel was saying. And I think that that's really where the anxiety is coming from, right? That they need to discredit him as being some, you know, liberal guy, right? It's like, if he was clean-shaven, then fine, you know, nobody would take him seriously. But he's not clean-shaven. He's got a langa boat, right? And he's not, you know, and he wears the frock and the, uh, and, and, and the up hat. You know, he, he looks at it. And he learned in Merkaz Arav, which is their flag inst- flagship institution, Right, and he, you know, and he is the rav of a yeshuv, like overlooking, overlooking Shem, like right on top of Har Grizim. It's not like he's some guy that's like, you know, he, he's not the rabbi of some liberal Orthodox congregation in South Jerusalem. No, he's one of us, or he looks like one of us, but he's really not one of us. That's what's going on with the opposition to to Pinei Halacha. And then there's one final thing, and here. If I'm being truly honest, I, I do have a certain amount of sympathy for his critics on this. Um, on certain issues, anyway. When it comes to Psak Halacha, there are, there are a group of, there's a... It's hard to formulate this, right? We, we're familiar with the concept of lichatchila and bidyeved when it comes to halacha. There are things that you're not allowed to do. If it happened, then okay. You're not allowed to, you know, pour an ounce of milk into the cholent. If you poured an ounce of, if an, if an ounce of milk fell into the cholent and there's 60 times the quantity of cholent against the milk, then bidyeved, post facto, the cholent is kosher, right? You're not allowed to pour it in there. But if it fell in there, don't worry about it. Right? We're familiar with. Um, where there's these two, uh, these two different answers, these two different values within halacha, and the value that's, you know, the, the, of, of the psak, meaning the, the, like what I mean by the, the valence, right? What the psak is depends on whether or not you're looking at something prospectively or retrospectively. Sometimes it's not formulated as l'chatchilobidiyeved, but it gets to l'chatchilobidiyeved, meaning it's we treat it differently if it already happened. Like for example, right? If somebody, if a married woman asks a Shiloh whether or not she's allowed to take up with another man, the answer is obviously going to be no. In every single way, no, 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 no. If she did, and she got pregnant from him, and she had a kid from him, and the kid's a mamzer, and the kid comes and asks the question, can I get married? Then Postkin will do every single thing in their power in order to make it that this kid is not, that the kid is not treated as a mamzer, right? You, you try to be... Makel, you try to find a petach, you try to be metahir amamzer in every way possible. But that's only 
way after the fact. It's not, we're not saying like, Lechatchila, this kid's a mamzer. But in the evidence, he's not a mamzer. No, that's not what we're saying. We're saying that the question of, am I allowed to, meaning the, 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 depending on when the question is, if the question is prospective or retrospective, it will produce different answers. And Poskin will treat them differently. And then there's a third area. Right? And this is one that I've been thinking about a lot. Um, especially in context of things like, uh, you know, the issue, an issue like abortion. And that is that there are entire areas of halacha where you have a very different answer depending on whether the question is what we call wholesale or retail. Wholesale means that there has to be, that there's this bright line that, you know, this, this general rule of guidance. The retail is when an individual comes and asks the question, what answer does the person get on an individual level? Okay, so when it comes to something like abortion, we know that the general principle is that feticide is forbidden. Right? There's there's it's it's something that's wrong to to destroy it's wrong to destroy a fetus, right? It's usser, prohibited, to destroy a fetus. That's a, a, as a general rule. But there are instances, and there's a, a great deal of disagreement about what those instances are, and we're not going to get into that, but there are instances in which feticide is permissible. Sometimes there are rare instances in which it's required. Okay? And in those cases, those are the retail cases. Right? So, in general, you're not going to find in halacha books, other than the most extreme examples of, let's say, you know, where, where, where the mother's life is in danger, you're not going to find examples of... You're not going to find examples of, you know, where, where the halacha where the, the code gets into the retail. Right? The code usually, a halachic code will usually give you the wholesale, but not the retail. Another example we, we discussed with regard to conversion. Right? When, we, when we talked about in an earlier episode, we talked about conversion, and we talked about how, I don't know if, it, I think it's some kind of collective ruach hakodesh that... We talked about how in the Gemara, the bright line of the Gemara says, Bodkin, right, you have to ask certain questions, you check for ulterior motives, right? And it's Tosos on the side that says that there is, that sometimes it can be up to the discretion of the Bezdin. And then the Torah, Paskins like the Gemara, but the Bez Yosef brings the exception in the small print. And then the Shulchan Aruch just quotes the Gemara, and the Shach brings the exceptions in the small print. So it's always in the big print you have the rule. And then in the small print you have, there's leeway. Okay? So that's an example. That's basically a, what that gives us is a graphic representation of wholesale versus retail. Right? The wholesale halacha is right there on the page in the front and center, black, and, black on white. The retail is, or the guidelines for the retail is, in the fine print on the side, 
And that's what you got to look at. Okay. So there are several issues in which Rav Malamid basically took something that had been wholesale and made it retail. Meaning, or, or taken, I'm sorry, taken something that had been retail and made it wholesale. One example is birth control. For a long time, the general rule that a young couple, an engaged or recently married couple would hear is birth control is forbidden. You're not allowed to go on, to birth, on birth control. It's usher. It's a problem. Can't do that. But couples that went to individual rabbis, the individual rabbi would come and say, like, okay, you know, these are the considerations. You're, you know, you, you want to make sure that you finish a degree. You want to make sure that uh, um, there are other mitigating circumstances here. Okay, fine. You can go into birth control, but we'll usually give a time, you know, a time, uh, a timing for it. You can go into birth control for a year, for six months, two years, whatever it is. Comes along with Mohammed, and in his book, uh, Simchat Habayit, he actually writes, he gives guidelines, and he gives, he gives general guidelines, and he says that, yeah, birth control is permitted in this circumstance, this circumstance, this circumstance. If there are, if, you know, if you already had this many kids, then you can go on to birth control indefinitely. If you, in, indefinitely. If you already had this many kids, then you can't, but you should talk to a rabbi. He, he gives a lot more general, he, he gives a lot more than the general guideline of usher. He says that, yes, it's permitted in certain circumstances. And if somebody has that book, they can look into it and say that, oh, okay, this circumstance applies to me. So this is what we should do. And we don't need to be asking a rabbi. And this is something that's it's given directly to the halachic consumer. It's not through the mediation of a rabbi. So he has taken something that had been retail and he's turning it wholesale. Okay. Now that's something birth control, obviously that's an issue that's only it ain't, birth control itself has been an issue for a very long time, but really truly effective forms of birth control, um, you know, i.e. the pill, uh, has only been, you know, it's it's less than a century still since it's been available um, for wide for wide use. Okay, so there could it could be that there is a, a tradition that this is something that's treated as wholesale, uh, that as retail and not wholesale, right? That the heterim are on the retail level and not on the wholesale level, but there you can say like, look. You know, it's been only a half a century since it became widespread use. You know, it really only became a thing that is that that is on the minds of Orthodox couples in the last uh, you know in the last generation or two. So yeah, it was retail at the beginning and not wholesale. The heterium were retail and not wholesale. But that really was just a function of time. That was really just a function of, you know, it took some time for this to become part of the part of the routine to establish certain patterns. But now those patterns have been established. Now we have a general, we do have a general attitude toward um, toward birth control. It's time to make this publicly available. It doesn't need to be 
you know, just retail anymore. It doesn't need to be, like, we can start talking about the heterim, the permissibility of using birth control on a wholesale level. And that's the, that's the decision that Rav Muhammad reached. And, of course, there are people that disagree with that. And that's some of the pushback. And that's why you see in, in these chovrot, like in, these, in the reaction, like they, they never really say ex- exactly what it is, but uh, they say in the recent volumes that have come out, he talks, he says things that, you know, weren't usually talked about and that, you know, these weren't things that are, that you got, uh, this wasn't how Psach Halacha was done. I think that one of the issues that they're talking about is this, is birth control. That Rav Mulamed is, in fact, much more open, and gives much more concrete guidelines for the average consumer, right, that they can take those guidelines and apply them and apply them to their lives, whereas in the past it was each individual couple would have been encouraged to go to a rabbi and not to make a decision based on, based on a book, based on a code. Another example is one of the ones that is a real controversy today. And here, I, I actually have much more sympathy with the critics of Rov Mohammed, and that is the question of Gior, right? In Gior, okay, let's be honest, everybody knows that the majority of people that convert through the Israeli chief rabbinate today do not, are not observant Jews, right? Are not... I don't know if that, I'm not going to be. I'm not going to say not fully observant. Some of them are. Some of them become observant. Most of them do not become observant. A lot of them do become traditional. I would imagine, you know, and the statistics back this up. It's you. The people that are converting through the Rabbanut usually are women who are not halakhically Jewish, who fall in love with and want to marry men who are and. The families of these men um, are very worried that their grandchildren are not going to be halakhically Jewish. So they very strongly encourage this woman to undergo conversion. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that... um, That means that these women, and it's usually women, are joining traditional families, which means that they are going to become somewhat traditional. They are going to be joining a context where their where Jewish tradition is valued. Um, so even if they're not going to, and they're they're not going to be fully observant. Nobody makes any bones about that. But this, this is the this is the reality and this is the situation in which they find themselves. But everybody knows that they're not so when it comes that they're that they're not going to become fully observant. So when it comes to when it comes to policy, right, and here's the thing. When it comes to policy, do you do you want to say out loud that, okay, we don't, and, and here, on, on, we'll, we'll use the wholesale retail. The wholesale rule is, conversion is, conversion requires real commitment to living life as, a, as an observant Jew. The reality, the wholesale, the issue that, you know, what happens usually in, and it's not just in Israel, it, it, it happened in the United States for, for, for a century, and it happened in Germany, and it happened in other places as well, 
that conversion, when conversion, that, that conversion often did not result in the convert being fully observant. And it was always understood that Bidiyavet, as long as there's some level of commitment, as long as there's, you know, they're coming into so, some sort of context, and, you know, they're sufficiently extenuating circumstances, uh, you know, that such conversions are, at least Bidiyavet, are okay. And people get that. And, and every, you know, and almost, you know, almost every rabbi knows that, and, everybody, and, and there, every rabbi who says that, no, we require 100% commitment, um, if they have been involved in, in conversion, has converted people that today are not fully observant, and even the day after uh, they converted were not fully observant. Yes, there was commitment to Torah and mitzvot and to observance, but that, that commitment was not even for one day translated into into reality. These are the facts, right? These are this is the reality of the world of conversion. Okay. Um, the question is, do you want to turn that into the? Do you want to turn that into the bright, bright line rule? Right. I, I think that I think personally that there's a very very strong value in saying that no conversion right at least when it when when you get the brochure of what conversion entails the brochure says conversion is a process that you know in that entails full commitment to jewish observance full commitment to living a life of shmirat mitzvot and shmirat torah and you don't say from the outset you know bidiyeved not even Bidiyavid. You know, it's, you know, the reality is that we just want you to be Jewish because we want to make sure that, you know, you're having Jewish kids and grandkids. And the mitzvah observance part is like, yeah, you have to commit to it and you have to be traditional, but, you know, nobody's really going to look too hard about that. Like, you don't want, like, do you want that to be the conversion policy? And, um, in the things that Rav Malamed has been writing, he's been saying that out loud. He's been saying, you know, once again, I'm going to use that metaphor, he's been saying the quiet part out loud. Um, and there I think, you know, and I had a, <laughs> I've had some long discussions with some people that are close with Rav Malamed. Um, you know, I, I think that this actually reflects a, uh, I don't know exactly how to, like there's a lot of different things going on there. Some of it has to do with the internalization of nationalist uh, ideas, you know, the the supremacy of amech ami over elokayich elokai. If we're going to use the words of root, I think some of it is um, a conflation, sort of a blurring the lines and a desire to blur the lines between what it means to be Jewish and what it means to be Israeli. And that's something that I also, I, I think that those lines, I think it's important not to blur those lines. I think it's actually important to create an, an Israeli identity that is distinct from Jewish identity, even if those two identities are overlapping. Um, I think they should be treated as two distinct identities, and I think it's important to treat them as two distinct identities. Um, and 
I think that part of it is also, you know, part of it also has to do with uh, the sense of national mission. Part of it has to do with a sense of, um, a sense of, uh, you know, possibly even a, like a Rove Cook type. I don't, I don't know if I should call it self-delusion, but that's kind of what I'm, I'm inclined to say that really these people deep down are committing on a very basic level to Torah and mitzvot, and the very fact that they're becoming Jewish means that there is some kind of commitment on some level to Torah and mitzvot. But, you know, the Yetzirah is very powerful. I, I, think that, I think that that's a little bit of a... You know, I don't think that's what's going on in a lot of these cases. Uh, I think that, yeah, people might want to become, you know, Jewish and have a Jewish identity, but... They don't see that as being in any way tied to Torah and mitzvot. Um, so I, I think that there is a little bit of, uh, I think there's a little bit of that too. Um, but, you know, and it happens to be that, okay, so even if I, my, my disagreement, the fact that I disagree with Rav, uh, Rav Malamed on this, and it's not like, oh, I disagree with Rav Malamed. Who am I to disagree with Rav Malamed? <laughs> you know, a lot of people disagree with Rav Malamed on this. Um, and, you know, I would say the vast majority of Rabbanim in Israel, for various reasons, disagree with Rav Malamed on this. You know, some say that, like, oh, yeah, because it needs to stay in Rabbanut control, which I think, obviously, um, you know, that ain't it. But, uh, you know, people, um, you know, I'm not alone in, in, in not, not seeing eye to eye with Rav Malamed on this. I've not yet gotten the opportunity to travel to Harbracha. It's probably about a hour and a half, two hours from where I live, and I, I don't get to go there very often. Um, but I would like to have a, a conversation with Rav Malamed about this. I don't know if I can persuade him of anything, but uh, I would like to have that conversation. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, you know, Rav Malamed is Rav Malamed. He's a bar hockey. He's going to say what he thinks. And I think that's one of his greatest poli- one of his greatest qualities is that he says what he thinks, even if most people disagree with him, and even if uh, it's an unpopular opinion, you know, he's going to go with it. Um, in this case, I think that it happens to be the wrong opinion, but that doesn't diminish my respect for him really in any way. Um, for other people, though, because this is an issue that's, you know, it's really very much a major issue in Israel and in Israeli politics. And obviously when it becomes a political issue, there's a whole other dimension. And, you know, he's probably the most significant religious Zionist figure to be saying this. And I don't, I'm not taking that, I'm not saying that to take away from what other people are saying, but he really has the credibility and he really has the following that, you know, you can look at that and say that he really is giving some kind of political cover to those who want to reform um, you know, the, the conversion system in Israel. Now, that doesn't necessarily, I, I, I'm not in favor of the, I'm not in favor of the particular reforms that are proposed either. But the point is that people look at Rav Malamed, they see that he's providing cover for that, um, and that supercharges whatever issues they may have, they may have with him, right? Because they're worried that not because of halacha and not because of any halachic considerations, and not because of halachic beliefs, and not through the power of persuasion, but through the brute force of naked politics, 
his halachic position is going to become the accepted one, right? And in that, he's, it's somewhat analogous to uh, a figure that we haven't discussed yet, and that is Rav Goren. Rav Goren, I think a lot of the a lot of the issue that people had with Rav Goren, and now this is very different because Rav Malamed is not actually in power, right? Rav Malamed is saying what he thinks, and people in power are taking what he thinks and using that as cover for their, you know, to to ram their views down the throat of the Israeli populace. Um, with Rav Goren, he actually did have the power, and I think that more than anything else with Rav Goren, the problem that people had with Rav Goren was that you know, everybody knew that he was a gon, and everybody knew that he was a you know, phenomenal Talmud Chacham, and he was a Bar Hachi, and he could, and he could paskin. But what people didn't like about him was that he had, he had his own independent views, his idiosyncratic views, but he also had power, either through the army and later through the office of chief rabbinate, and he had no compunctions at all about just simply carrying out what he felt to be the correct halachic view, you know, his halachic view, um, even if, you know, without going through the process of what I would call peer review, right, other rabbis commenting on it, other rabbis responding to it, which is the way that these things have been hammered out um, through the course of history. Rabbis didn't have political power. Rabbis Rabbis didn't have power. Rabbis have authority, but not power. Rabbis didn't have police forces at their disposals. Rabbis didn't hold guns to people's heads to get their way. Now, except for Rav Goren. Rav Goren kind of did, right? He literally had an army. He literally, like, um, you know, he had real political power. The, rab- the Israeli chief rabbinate does have real political power. Now, other earlier chief rabbis didn't want to use it. Rav Herzog, he had beliefs, his beliefs were similar to Rav Goren's beliefs, but he didn't actually act on them because he deferred to people like the Chazanish. Right? Well, the Chazanish said, you can't do this, and he was like, all right, I'm not going to go against the Chazanish. Um, Rav Goren didn't have such compunctions, right? If he said, I think that these that these people are not Mamzerim, all these other people think that they are Mamzerim, I don't care. I'm just going to do what I think is right and not go through this process of having, you know, trying to get the Haskama trying to get the, um, the, you know, the, the agreement or the consent of a broader swath of rabbis. Um, I think that's going to be it for the series on Rav Malamid and on Penine Halacha. Um, it's turned into other things. I'm actually going to be interviewed in another, uh, you know, on, on next week by, uh, by Scott Kahn of the Orthodox Conundrum podcast. So, you know, listeners here will probably, you know, it might be some reruns, there might be some new stuff. Um, it's worth a listen, I think, I hope, the interview hasn't happened yet. But uh, I think we'll move on to other things in the next uh, in the next episode, and that's all at this point. For now, uh, that's all we have, you know, this concludes the series on Rav Muhammad.